Morning. Passion Week is always a lot of fun. Biblically, when you think through it. And the uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Talk about a misnomer. Triumphal entry, everybody's happy but Jesus. You compare all the Gospels together and you see that... uh, it was a time of great sadness for the Lord. He, Luke tells us that he came up over the Mount of Olives on the back of the donkey weeping because he knew that the, that the city would reject him. So while the disciples are shouting for joy, <laughs> Jesus is weeping because he, knew, he knows that ultimately he's going to be rejected. The triumphal entry was really sort of the, uh, when you think of our uh, national conventions for our presidents. The triumphal entry served sort of as that for Jesus in the sense that by the time we have a national convention, we all know who the candidates are going to be. The national convention just makes it official. Prior to the triumphal entry, everybody knew, at least the followers of Jesus, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, especially the Twelve. They were pumped about that because they they knew that Jesus had been offering the kingdom. It's time to get the kingdom started, God's plan here on earth. And so when Jesus presented himself to Israel on the back of the donkey in in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, it was basically him saying, yes, I am the Messiah. And if you trace back the uh, prophecy of Daniel as well, Daniel chapter 9 actually gave the very day that the Messiah would appear. The, uh, the 490 years of Daniel's 77s from the rebuilding of the wall in 444 B.C., you do all the math and it comes right to the day of Jesus presenting himself as the Messiah. So there were so many things pointing to that very day. And Jesus actually said when he was riding on the donkey, he said, if you had known in this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from you. So it's sort of a misnomer, the triumphal entry, where the disciples are all excited about the kingdom that's going to be delayed, and they're shouting for joy. And then at the bottom of that very same hill, the Mount of Olives, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And just five days later, those same disciples who were shouting for joy would be fleeing in fear because their Messiah was arrested and their dreams are shattered. Um, So that's Sunday. And then Monday, of course, Jesus goes to the temple, begins to teach. Tuesday, he uh, teaches for the last time in the temple and and makes that statement to Israel. He says, unless, until you learn to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you're not going to see me again. In other words, until you say that I'm the Messiah, um, your house is desolate, meaning the temple, and Jesus leaves. Leaves the temple and hasn't been back in it for 2,000 years. And the disciples, it's sort of funny, we, 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 we laugh at them because we sort of figure these guys are kind of dumb as stumps sometimes. But the reality is they just had expectations of Jesus that were far different from reality. But they, as Jesus is walking out of the temple, they say, Lord, look at these beautiful stones. Jesus had just said, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. And the disciples go, boy, aren't these beautiful buildings? And Jesus takes them to the Mount of Olives after that and gives the Olivet Discourse of, how, uh, of the future judgment that's coming on Israel as a result of, um, 
of their rejection of him. Well, Wednesday, there's not a lot that's talked about that happened during Passion Week, interesting, except that the religious leaders got together with Judas to uh, plan out the betrayal. Thursday of Passion Week, we call it Monday Thursday, or it's the great the day of the great mandate. That's what the Monday means. It's not Monday Thursday. Monday Thursday means the, the mandate, the great mandate to love one another, which was given that night in the upper room when Jesus had his last Passover meal and the first communion. And then, of course, Friday, our Good Friday, Another sort of misnomer in the sense of what happened on it was terribly unjust, and yet great good came from it, Jesus dying for our sins. Saturday, of course, is the Sabbath with the the disciples having to rest and basically just wait. All their dreams completely shattered. I mean, think about all the hopes in the last three and a half years. They've left their careers. Many of them have put their families on hold. And they followed Jesus thinking they've got the box seats in the kingdom of God. I mean, he chose us. We're the 12. And all of a sudden, they've all, they've all deserted him. Peter's denied him. Judas betrayed him. And all their dreams are shattered. But then Sunday. Wonderful Sunday morning. When the great uh, truth that their dreams have not been shattered... They just misunderstood God's plan. The Passion Week is a wonderful, not just study of the events of the life of Jesus that lead up to resurrection, but it's also a great study in, in um, realizing that the expectations we have as we follow Jesus Christ aren't always accurate. And it takes time, and, and sometimes it takes a cross before we will actually come to the point of realizing, oh, this is God's plan. Sometimes it takes great struggle. I actually did a video series on the Passion Week um, that I would love for you to watch. I've got it on a website called passionweektour.com. Passionweektour.com. It's a three-series, three-part series on the Passion Week. I walk through every day at the actual places Kathy and I went and filmed in Jerusalem with uh, a friend of mine, uh, who did our camera work. So I would love for you to watch that, passionweektour.com. But we're not here today to talk about the Passion Week. But since it's Palm Sunday, I thought, well, what a great, uh, what a great opportunity to talk about that. Instead, I'd like to talk about your New Year's resolutions. How are those going? <laughs> the what? New Year's resolutions. That ended halfway through January didn't it? I recently read that the primary reason New Year's resolutions don't work out is because we don't keep them in front of us. We don't keep them, we don't stay aware of them. It's truly a, a, an issue of out of sight, out of mind. If we don't regularly review our goals, then we won't do our goals. But if we keep them in front of us, then it, it, we continually remember, oh yeah, there's something, I wanted to do that. And here's why I wanted to do that. Here's why I felt that that's important. We live in a world of distractions. And it's not just true for losing weight or um, dieting or whatever other uh, New Year's resolutions there are. Are there other resolutions other than <laughs> exercising and losing weight? Of course there are. There are those related to our spiritual life. 
And the same is true. If we don't keep them front and center, we will forget them. Our world is built to distract us from the spiritual life. It's designed to get, the, to get our focus away from Jesus Christ, and instead we've got to keep him front and center. Kathy and I have a friend named Richard who lives in San Diego, and when we were out there visiting him one time, he told me, he said, he said Wayne, I have to be in God's Word every single day or I will get distracted. And I thought, boy, what a great, what a great model. Because the same is true of me. I have to be in it every day, and I love being in it every day. The same is true of you. We need to be in God's Word on a regular basis, and I'd even say on a daily basis. Not as a box to check, but for the same reason you eat food every day. You know, for some reason we're never too busy to eat. <laughs> have you noticed? We can even cram it in three times a day more than we need. But somehow with God's word, it's not always that way. Let's turn together to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going through a series where we take a message, just a single message from each of the 66 books of the Bible. And hey, we've only got 60 to go. Or actually 61. Here we are on the fifth book, Deuteronomy. The first five books that we've gone through are called the Pentateuch. Tuk is from a Greek word, tukos, which means book. Penta obviously means five. So the five books, or the five scrolls, are the first five books, often called the, the Pentateuch. And in Genesis, we learned that God basically designed, desired to bless his creation, what he had made, he wanted to bless. The curse tainted that blessing. But God desired that through Abraham, that blessing is going to spread to the whole world. Ultimately, we know through Jesus Christ. Abraham's descendants at the end of the book of Genesis numbered 70. And they sojourned down in Egypt to escape a famine. While they were there, the book of Exodus, we see that they grew into a nation of a couple of million, were enslaved. God miraculously brought them out of Egypt, took them to Mount Sinai, gave them his word, in order to prepare them for the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham. But we see in the book of uh, Numbers, which comes right after Leviticus, where he'd given them laws for the land, the book of Numbers, that they didn't have faith to enter. So they wandered for 40 years, came back again, and began to um, get ready to enter the land. So now we come to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy if you look, just think of just the name itself. The, uh, the book, the, the word duto means two, and namas, or nami, namas, means uh, law. And so the second law, or the second giving of the law, is what it means. So why do we have a second giving of the law? Because we have a brand new generation. Remember, the first generation has died in the wilderness. They didn't have faith to enter. And so they wandered for 40 years. That generation died. And now there's a brand new generation getting ready to go into the land. They needed a fresh retelling and even an expansion of the law to prepare them to enter the promised land. And they are camped at a place called the Plains of Moab. You, uh, you could look at your... Let's take a, a gamble that, that your maps in the back of the Bible 
show this, but just find a map that shows the, where you can find the Dead Sea. It's the big body of water, sometimes called the Salt Sea. But just find a map that shows the Dead Sea. And you should see the Jordan River flowing into the top of it. And so if you find where the Jordan River flows into the top of the Dead Sea, right to the right of the Jordan River, just above the Dead Sea, are the plains of Moab. This is where Israel was camped when Moses wrote and delivered the book of Deuteronomy. So they're literally right on the edge, on the threshold of crossing over into the promised land. And uh, Moses delivers this book to them. I've thought about this through the years, and it's been a pretty consistent picture. But if you think about the Pentateuch, or the first five books, it gives sort of a picture of our walk with God. Genesis talks about God choosing us by grace. Abraham is that, that model. Genesis, God chooses us by grace. Exodus, he redeems us through faith. Leviticus, he teaches us how to walk with him. Numbers, he disciplines us when we don't walk with him. And Deuteronomy, he gives us a second chance. It's a beautiful picture of our redemption right there in the Pentateuch. And so when we look at Deuteronomy today, a second chance with God, we're going to cover uh, just a few just snapshots, four different very specific places from the book of Deuteronomy. The first is in chapter 6, a very familiar and yet so essential few verses. Deuteronomy 6, let's begin right in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you were going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The purpose, Moses says, of the law, the purpose of what he's writing here, the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy, is the same purpose we get every time we open our Bibles. The purpose is for our long life, a, a, a lifelong devotion to God. A lifelong devotion to God. And it is, a, it is a devotion that is lived out. Did you notice that he said a number of times that you may do them, that you may do them? This is always the goal of the Bible. It's never just information. It's transformation. It's application. Paul told Timothy in his first letter, he said, the goal of our instruction is love. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
But he says, but some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. The goal of the Bible is not discussion, fruitless discussion. The goal is love. The goal is application. The goal is fruit, not fruitless discussion. James, of course, says to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. The discussion of the Bible is to bear fruit in our lives. All scripture is God-breathed so that the man or woman of God may be adequately prepared for every good work. Verse 4 that we read is called, in, it's called the, the Shema or the Shema because of the Hebrew word hear, which is Shema. Hear, it's a command. Hear, Israel. Listen to this, and here's what you're to hear. The Lord is our God, Yahweh, the Lord is our God, and he is one. To say that the Lord is one doesn't contradict the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, at all. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew word for God, the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, can be translated gods. It's the same word, and the context has to decide that, whether it's God or gods. And so even in the word for God, it, it is a plural word that it allows for, for plurality which is sort of interesting. Um, and not only that, but in Genesis, back in uh, Genesis chapter 2, we're told that the same word is used for one there to describe Adam and Eve, where the two became one. You've got two persons, and yet they're described as one. It's the same idea with God. He is one God, and yet he is revealed ultimately in the grand scheme of Scripture as, as existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These verses, the Lord our God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the Shema, traditionally because of what follows, the Jews throughout history have recited this twice a day, when you get up and when you go down to sleep, uh, because of the verses that follow, as, as we'll see. It's the fundamental truth of their faith and of our faith, and it's followed by the fundamental command. Again, it's not just a matter of knowing, but it's a matter. The goal of our instruction is love. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. It's not just mental assent. There's action. There's application. We love God. The Hebrew word for love is ahava. If you've got, gotten any lotion from the Dead Sea, you've probably gotten ahava lotion. Well, it's not just the name of lotion from the Dead Sea, it's actually the Hebrew word for love. And the word love is the word that's used in this verse. I actually did a little bit of study on that Hebrew word, and here's what it means sort of in a grander sense. Love can mean uh, a lot of things, especially in this day and age. But what does it mean biblically? Well, this particular word means it, it refers to a person who clings to someone or something that they love or to run after them or to seek them. And behind this yearning to be near them physically, so there's a, a yearning to have a physical proximity to the, to the person or the object of your love, there is an emotional connection as well. 
Uh, there is an affection. There is choosing something because it's lovely, because it's honored, and because it's precious. This is, this is the idea of love. In short, it's basically the desire to be intimately united with this person in all parts of life. And so when, when it says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your might, with all your heart, it's saying very clearly, it's expressing very clearly what is bound up in that word love. It is a loving of God from all of who you are. In fact, when Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment in the whole law? I mean, imagine that. If you had to summarize everything, what would you say? Jesus said this verse. He said, you shall love the Lord your God. But the way that he said it, or the way that it's recorded in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, says that you shall love the Lord your God from out of all your heart. It's often translated with all your heart, with all your soul, with all, with all your mind, with all your strength. But the Greek there refers to a source that you love the Lord your God from out of all of your heart and from out of all of your soul and from out of all your mind and from out of all your strength. It's all of the above all at the same time. The source of your love for God in your mind, heart, soul, and strength is your love for God is, is from all of who you are. There's no exception. There's no part of our lives that doesn't love God. It's all-inclusive. And that's pretty practical, isn't it? When you think about your walk with God, that means that there's nothing that's not covered. Every part of your day is devoted to loving God. It's not just a feeling, it's an action. So how is this love applied? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 6. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, it's part of your daily life. He's using these, these extremes. It's, called a, it's a figure of speech called a mirrorism. It means that you, you describe the extremities and it implies everything in between. In other words, when you, uh, when you lie down and when you rise up. So in other words, when you go to sleep and when you wake up. And it implies everything else. When, when you go out and when you come in, it implies everything in between going out and coming in. In other words, it's all of who you are. Again, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're teaching them not just at the family quiet time. You're teaching them not just when you give them to Sunday school and let the Sunday school teach them. That it is on your heart, verse 6, therefore you teach them diligently in the, in the normal course of just living. That the Lord is such a part of your life that it's a normal part of conversation. It's not a special time where you sit down and now, all, now we get spiritual. It's, it's part of who you are. You're walking, down, you're walking down the road, or in our case, you're driving down the road. You see a great sunset, and 
you bring the Lord into the conversation. You look for opportunities to bring the Lord into the conversation. Kathy and I tried to do this so often with our girls that they got sick of it. In fact, I remember one time we were, we were I forget what, what the illustration was, but um, I asked the girls, I said, you know what, we, we, we observed something, and I said, you know what that reminds me of? And, yes, Dad, it reminds you of God somehow. <laughs> well, at least they're making the connection. And he says that you are to make it, you're to bind them as a sign. Notice the word as. As. It is, it's a metaphor. It, it, it's applied literally today, and, uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if it's only applied literally. Uh, Jesus talks about this in some sense when he mentions the phylacteries. But the phylacteries... Phylactery is a word that literally means an amulet. They were leather cases that held passages of Scripture, and we've all seen it. We've seen the modern Jews today that wear the phylacteries, you know, the leather pouches on their head and the straps around their arms, that ha and they have Scripture in it. We've seen on the door the um, mezuzahs, right, that have little scrolls that are rolled up and put in there. When you walk by the door, you touch it, and, and you kiss your hand. It, it refers to a reverence for the Scripture. But it, it's got to go beyond simply the, this physical activity. It's got to be, as, as Moses says, it's to be on your heart, verse 6. The reason that you teach them diligently to your sons is because it's on your heart. It's on your heart. So of course you're going to share. It's on your heart. It's, it's hard sometimes to be around people who don't know the Lord, or I should say, um, nominal Christians, maybe that'd be a, 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 a way to say it. I mean, nominal Christians know the Lord, but I mean, but they don't ever talk about the Lord. If somebody's on your heart, you're going to talk about them. It's going to be part of who you are. And I hope that you'll, if you feel that like when you're in a conversation and the Lord just naturally wants to burst out in that moment, you know, you want to you want to talk about it. You want to mention something. Just go ahead and do it. You know, you don't have to give the gospel and the four spiritual laws or whatever. But just just bring God into the conversation. Just just somehow make Him part of the conversation. It doesn't have to be offensive. Just make Him present. And it's diligently taught to children. And it's 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 written in some kind of a tangible way that you will think about him. Here it says, you know, you, you have the frontals or you have the binding on your hand or you write them on the doorposts of your house. But practically, this doesn't just mean, you know, wear phylacteries and put mezuzahs on your doors, but it can also be applied a number of other ways. You have scripture screensavers. You have uh, three-by-five cards that you that you look at while, uh, while you're mowing the yard. This is what my wife does. I noticed just this week, she was out there mowing the yard on our little riding mower, and she had her handful of three-by-five cards. She's got a stack of three-by-five cards like this that has scripture verses on them. She's out there mowing. She's reading her scripture. I thought, yep, Deuteronomy 6, right there. And that's biblical. To put verses on your mirror, to put verses on your dashboard, 
to have these things that are constantly reminding you. Because remember, like New Year's resolutions, if we don't have God's Word and the Lord constantly in front of us, renewing our mind on a regular basis, the distractions of the world will take our minds in other directions. So we're going to look at several directions, you might say. The first we've already seen is inward. We're going to look inward, we're going to look forward, we're going to look backward, and we're going to look upward. We just looked inward, that your heart loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's your motivation. But now let's look forward. Verse 10, it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Watch that you don't forget. As we look forward, our danger is um, forgetting God complacency. That when we, God leads us into a life that's full of blessings, it's so easy to take our eyes off of the Lord and on to just the blessings. That we look to the blessings as if they become entitlements or that they're just part of the norm. And we forget the Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt. God saved us from a life of sin. And he has saved us by his grace. He says, watch yourself. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Again, out of sight, out of mind. If he's on your heart, and if you're teaching him diligently, and if, you're, and if you've got some kind of a sign, whatever it is, that, that reminds you of the word of God, then you're not going to forget. You're going to watch yourself. You don't forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So we look inward at our motivation is to love God. We look forward that is, at the potential danger of forgetting the Lord. Keep your finger, if you will, uh, here in Deuteronomy and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4. I mentioned that they're on the plains of Moab. And remember, just picture again that map in your mind. The, the Dead Sea, the Jordan River flowing into the Dead Sea, to the right of the Jordan River is the plains of Moab, where Moses wrote Deuteronomy. But on the other side of the Jordan River, there by Jericho, begins the wilderness. And the reason that's significant is because it is that very part of the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. Therefore, it was the wilderness right next to that very part where Jesus was tempted. When Jesus was tempted in this very same area that, that Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, interesting, what did Jesus quote when he was tempted? Exclusively from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. He, he quoted from Deuteronomy exclusively. Interesting. In the very same area that it was written. Matthew chapter 4, look at the first few verses. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came to him 
and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy, uh, there in verse 4, Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus' need, we are introduced to his need here by him being hungry. But we are also introduced to another need right before that in verse 1. He was led into the wilderness to be tempted. There's another need, spiritually. He had a spiritual need and he had a physical need. And Jesus, in quoting Deuteronomy, is saying, uh, you, you are saying, in response, he says, make these stones become bread. Jesus is saying, I'm not just a physical person. I'm also a spiritual person. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, I can resist the temptation that you're giving me physically because I am filled spiritually because of the word of God. And we know he was because he quotes it. Turn back to Deuteronomy and look at the chapter that he quotes, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you should be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you, and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You see, the purpose of the time in the wilderness for Israel, we're told here several clear purposes. One, in, in, in verse 2, that he might humble you, testing you to see what, what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands. So the first purpose of the wilderness wandering was a test of humbling to see what was in their hearts, whether or not they would obey. The second purpose in verse 3, about halfway through it, is that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that comes out of the mouth of God. In other words, you're not just a physical being. Have you noticed how often when we pray to the Lord, we're praying for physical things? And if we did an inventory of our prayer life, I think we'd see so often most of what we're asking God for is physical things. Physical health, physical needs, or that of others that we love. But we're not just physical beings, are we? We're spiritual people, and we live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so our prayer, prayer life, needs to be not just God protect us on the journey, God help me feel better, God take away this particular pain, but Lord, 
You use these things to humble us, to test us, to know what's in our hearts, to teach us, verse 3, that we aren't just physical beings, but we must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Look down at verse 16. He sort of repeats this, but gives an additional purpose. Verse 16, in the wilderness he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. God's goal is long term. It's not just right now. And God is willing to let us struggle right now so that we'll have a better long term. That was his goal for Israel. And that's his goal for us as well. God's goal for us is long term. So the wilderness time that you might be wandering in right now is, has a purpose. It is a, it's a good purpose, and it's a, it's a purpose of God's grace, and it's a purpose that he might do good in the end. That's a, that's a, really, good, that's a really good news. Turn a couple of more chapters to Deuteronomy 11. We've looked inward at our motivation. We've looked forward at the danger of forgetting God. In chapter 8, we just looked backward at what God taught us in the wilderness, the purpose of that. And now we're challenged to look upward. Deuteronomy 11 Let's look down at verse 10. I love these verses. He says, For the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, from the beginning even to the end of the year. And it shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land and its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle. You will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. I love these verses because these verses talk not just about the promised land, but about our lives. There's principle. There's, there are principles here that are relevant not just for the time of Joshua and the time of Moses, but for, for us. If you think about the land that God would give his people, you might imagine the Garden of Eden. I mean... Make it great. If you're going to give them the promised land, make it great. If you were going to design a land for your kids or grandkids, would you design a land that made them struggle? No. You'd design a great place for them to live. 
you would not design a place that lacked water. <laughs> it was like pretty basic. But God designed a land that did not have a natural source of water or an abundant source, which is what he means when he says the land you're entering is not like the land of Egypt in which you used to water, uh, sow your seed and water with your foot like a vegetable garden. In other words, they'd make channels off the Nile. That's the idea of the foot, to use your foot to kind of make a, a channel. But they'd, they'd irrigate off of the Nile. And the Nile, you got plenty of water. You never had to worry about water in Egypt. You, get, you had a 4,000-mile-long source of water, the Nile. In fact, it was so spectacular that the Egyptians deified it as a god. And it wasn't like the, the, uh, the land of, that they came from either, like Euphrates, um, because, because the Euphrates was there. But he says, the land into which you were going, it gets water, verse 11, from the rain of heaven. And the, the word there for rain, it says rain of heaven. It's sort of almost a play on words because the word for water in Hebrew is maim and the word for heaven is shemaim. There's, in fact, the word heaven means water there. That's what heaven means, water there. Water comes from God. God put his people in a land that only worked if they had a relationship with him. That is so essential because the same is true with our lives. The Christian life doesn't work without Christ. <laughs> we need him. We need him every day and in every way. And sometimes God will allow droughts, whether they're financial or health or relationships, not because he's cruel, but because he, being our Father, wants our obedience. And like Israel, he puts us in places that require faith. Multiple places throughout the scripture we're told the righteous will live by faith. God is never going to get us to a point in life where we don't have to trust him. You'd think by now you've got life figured out, right? You'd think by now you'd have arrived at a place where you don't have to trust God. I mean, some of us have lived a long time. You'd think by now it wouldn't be such a challenge. But the reality is it's just as hard, isn't it? There's always something to trust God for. You're having to trust God for something right now. I don't even know your situation, and yet I know your situation. You have, you're having to trust God for something right now. That's rigged. It is. God rigs it that way. Not because he's cruel, but because if he doesn't put us in the Holy Land that needs water, if he doesn't put us in a life that demands we trust him, we won't trust him. We will wander. And so whatever it is you're having to trust God for right now, in a strange way, is a real blessing because it keeps you close to the Lord. Otherwise, you might wander off just like I would. Well, one more place, and I love this. It's so hard to pick one spot in Deuteronomy, so we pick four spots. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. We've looked inward, seeing our motivation is to love God. We've looked forward to seeing our danger is to forget God. 
We've looked backward to see the lessons that God has taught us, those humbling lessons in the wilderness. We've looked upward to see our dependence on God. And now we get a very, very practical application as Moses ends the book of Deuteronomy and his, his final words we get this practical application. You're in chapter 32, look down. You probably have to turn the page to verse 45. Deuteronomy 32, 45. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Verse 47 I have highlighted in my Bible because I need to remember it. It is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. This wonderful book is not part of our Sunday attire. It's not like the coat that I put on today, <clears throat> which I could have picked any other coat. It's not like the shoes. It's not part of our Sunday outfit <laughs> that we grab and bring along. It used to be that way. I remember growing up, there was a huge separation between Sunday and Monday. My family, we went to church, but there wasn't the talking of God and walking by the way and all that. There was a clear separation. It wasn't intentional. Uh, our family, you know, encouraged morality and all that. But there wasn't this atmosphere of God. There wasn't this, this presence of God in the house. There was a clear separation. I actually had my Bible on my dresser sitting right next to my little clip-on ties. And I'd clip on the tie and I'd clip on the Bible and we'd go to church. It wasn't until I got to college and got involved in a church that actually taught the Word and encouraged you to read the Word beyond simply clipping it on that I discovered verse 47, not necessarily the verse itself, but the truth of the verse itself. It's not an idle word. It's your life. And I hope that you have that same passion, that same conviction. Um, whatever it is you're struggling with in life, the Bible addresses it. And the truth is there just waiting for you. That doesn't mean that once you read it, your problem's solved. But what, is, what it does mean is that once you get your arms around the fact that, you know, you read the Psalms and you see, wow, David struggled with doubt. Or you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you think, wow, Solomon struggled with materialism. Or you read the Song of Solomon and you think, wow, even King Solomon in all his wisdom had a fight with his wife. 
you read the um, the book of uh, you read Paul's letters or the book of Acts, and you see that sometimes Paul uh, even struggled and said, "Please pray for me that I may speak courageously like I should." The Word of God deals with the life that we live, and the reason we're told here in Deuteronomy to pay careful attention is because our heart will wander. The Bible is there to guide you, to comfort you, to help you. Be in it regularly. In fact, I would even challenge that you be in it daily. And by be in it, I mean take the time to read it in such a way that you understand it and you think, what's one thing I can carry with me throughout today? And apply it. You know, one thing I love about the life of Christ is is a truth that we get from his temptation. You know, he quoted Deuteronomy in, uh, in his temptation, and he wasn't carrying around scrolls. One of the great truths of the life of Jesus is you realize, what did Jesus do all those silent years he was growing up in Nazareth? Well, yeah, we know he was chiseling mortises and making dining tables. But what else was he doing? Jesus grew up with a hammer in one hand and a scroll in the other. He prepared for three and a half years of ministry by three and a half decades of studying the Word of God. And we know that because as soon as he was tempted, Scripture spilled out. We need to be the same way. To be so familiar with this word. So I need to say amen or I'm just going to keep crying here. (laughs) All right, so let's pray. Father, we don't worship the Bible, not one bit. But through these words on a page, we understand the truth that is not an idle word. It is our lives. Thank you, Father, for loving us enough to not leaving us to uh, common sense, to not leaving us with a mind that would, with, um, with a world, leaving us in a world where the government determines right and wrong or where, um, where we vote on it or where we even bring a committee together to decide what should be done. But your word gives us the guidance both corporately as well as privately. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who's in the wilderness, who is in that season that we've read about of great humbling and testing and struggling, that you draw them to the Bible and that as you do, you would sovereignly take them to the places that would give them encouragement, instruction, and give them guidance as to what the next steps are. You've done that in my life a thousand times, as is with many others as well, and we're grateful. Thanks for the life of Moses, writing these five books. He wasn't a perfect man by any means, but you inspired him to write these words that we've studied over these last five weeks and how helpful they have been. Help us to apply this word that is not idle. We pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. All right, so two weeks, we're back at, what's next? Joshua, I guess.